Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. It is great to be here to continue our series on the Acts of the Spirit. And today we are going to think about uh, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does. We've looked at various things that he does across this series. Today we're going to think about how the Holy Spirit brings unity in the God's people. And we're going to look at one particular church at the church at Antioch. But first of all, I want to begin where the book begins, uh, Acts chapter 1, to show that this is not just a theme that is located in one or two chapters later on in the book. Actually, it's a theme that runs right the way through the book of Acts. And the book begins in Acts chapter 1 with this. Jesus gathers his disciples together and he tells them that they are going to receive the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So right from the very beginning of the book, we get this sense that God is on a mission. And it's a mission that doesn't stop at the edge of Jerusalem. God is on a mission to all nations and all people, and he is on a mission of what Paul goes on to describe as reconciling all things in heaven and on earth. And he does this perhaps primarily by reconciling people to himself and then making them ambassadors, sending them out to continue this ministry, this mission of reconciliation. And he starts with his disciples. And to be honest, they're not your classic group of leaders. If I was selecting 12 people to be my followers, which I'm not, <laughs> applications are not open for that. I uh, see the eagerness on your faces. Uh, I'm not sure I would choose these guys, to be honest. I don't know what comes to mind when you think of the 12 disciples. Maybe it's something like this or this. <laughs> uh, Leonardo da Vinci's picture of the Last Supper. It's a familiar, famous picture. You've got Jesus, you've got the disciples. It looks you know, fairly peaceful, fairly ordered, fairly serene. Maybe this is what comes to mind for you. Or perhaps, here's a different take on it. Uh, this is a modern rendition by the Scottish artist Peter Howson, who has depicted how he thinks the disciples may actually have looked at the Last Supper. And I kind of think, in a weird sort of way, though this isn't anywhere near as beautiful as our nice sort of stained glass window versions of things, actually this reflects something of what I think the disciples might have been more like. They are not a clean, polished, wonderful bunch of people. They are rough around the edges. And actually, the makeup of the disciples, these groups that Jesus put his spirit upon, it's, it's quite a complex bunch. I mean, you've got Peter, who was a fisherman. Nothing against fishermen, clearly. But uh, he, he was an abrasive chap. He was impulsive. He criticized Jesus time and time again, or contradicted him at least. And then when it came to him, he denied Jesus three times. I'm not sure he'd be classic leadership material, and yet Jesus chooses him. Then you've got another couple called James and John who were given a nickname by Jesus, the Sons of Thunder. Now, you don't get a nickname like that without reason. And there's this story in the Gospels where they're walking through this village in Samaria, and it says they get a bit of a frosty reception. And so James and John, the Sons of Thunder, turn to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, how about you call down fire from heaven and obliterate this village? Like You see where the name comes from. Jesus said no, by the way, to, to be perfectly clear, just to finish that one off. But this is a strange bunch of people can have the next slide actually then you get Simon the zealot he was part of a band of revolutionaries who thought that the kingdom of God was going to come through violence and so these guys would wear these razor sharp knives so that when the uprising came they would be ready to kill anyone that got in the way and then throw into the mix Matthew the tax collector this guy spent his life getting money from his fellow Jews to give to the Romans their oppressors now imagine how this bunch of people got on. 
And we could carry on through the list as well. Imagine how Matthew and Simon might have got on as part of this small leadership team. And one of them works for the Romans, the other one wants to kill the Romans. That's not great chemistry. Actually, scholars suggest that people may have been taxed up to 50 to 90% of their income, with fishermen often being the most taxed people in society. Imagine how Peter and Matthew would have got on. And yet it's this group of people that Jesus says, I'm going to pour my spirit upon you and I'm going to use you for my ministry of reconciliation. Right at the beginning of the book of Acts, we get this sense that Jesus is able to reconcile the irreconcilable and use them for his glory. And at this point, we're eight verses into a long book. But in those eight verses, I think we see a small pattern, a microcosm of what God plans to do right through the book of Acts and to this day through his people. God is in the business of reconciliation. If you were to turn the page to the next chapter, Acts 2, where we began this series a few weeks ago, we see the story of Pentecost where the Spirit comes upon these disciples and they preach with such boldness and power that 3,000 people become followers of Jesus. And in Acts 2, it lists many of the nationalities represented at that event, just shy of a million people from the various different corners of the earth. And it says that there's this miraculous moment where the disciples preach And they speak in this language that the Holy Spirit has inspired. And yet everyone there is able to hear the message in their own language. The very first miracle the Spirit does is breaks down language barriers that stop the gospel crossing from person to person, group to group. And people are so confused by this, they ask for an explanation. And Peter stands up and he reads these verses from the prophet Joel, which says this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And then as if he didn't think that we might get the full extent of what he meant by all people, he then sort of clarifies it further. He says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We are two chapters in to this book. And already, God has poured out his spirit on a dozen disciples with serious philosophical differences and empowered them to preach in a way that supernaturally crosses boundaries of ethnicity, gender, and age. And here is really today's message in a nutshell. The spirit unites everyone into family. One of the acts of the spirit is that he welcomes us all into a family in which everyone is welcome and everyone is equal. And he invites us to get on board with his mission. And this is something I think we so need. You don't need me to tell you that we live in a divided world right now. All you need to do is cast your mind back over stories from the last few weeks or months or year. And you will know there are so many stories that show that we are in a divided world. Stories of racially motivated violence, of acts of terror fueled by religious fundamentalism, frustration between people of different generations, millennials and boomers, for example, division over political persuasion, stories of harassment, abuse, men mistreating women, and so on. And those are just the obvious ones, let alone the more subtle systemic prejudices that people experience on a day-to-day basis. But for many of us, we just become so accustomed to, we don't even notice them anymore. We live in a divided world. And I'm not naive enough to think that I can answer all those problems in a 35-minute talk, to be clear. But I do think, as I read the Bible, that part of the answer to the problem of division in our world has to be rooted somehow in the gospel. 
And it has to be rooted somehow in the community that the Spirit is making by knitting together people into one family. You see, as I read the book of Acts, it strikes me that God is building a family in which all are welcome, irrespective of gender, age, ethnic background, financial status, physical limitations, social class, relationship status. The Spirit takes all who put their trust in Jesus and knits them together into one family, inviting us to join him and the ministry of reconciliation. Acts chapter 10. The gospel arrives at a place called Caesarea. And up to now, the general strategy has been that the disciples, the apostles, they go into a place and they preach to the Jews. They were the people who were already expecting the Messiah. So they're the people you'd think would be most receptive to the message. And yet they're there in Acts chapter 10. And Peter has this moment where God speaks to him three times because he doesn't get it the first time. Three times God speaks to him about some of his own preconceptions and how his ideas of who was in, who was out, who was clean, who was pure, who was welcome and who was not, were actually counter to the very message that he was preaching. And God gives him this moment of revelation which challenges what was in his heart. And Peter goes and he speaks to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, and he says this, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So Peter preaches to this crowd, and it says that all the Gentiles are filled with the Holy Spirit. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in their way of being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. This is a real turning point in the story. Because now the Holy Spirit is available to everyone and he unites those who are separate. One of the hallmarks of the activity of the Spirit is unity in diversity. And this is not just the case in the book of Acts. It's the case right throughout history. If you read the stories of many times in history where God has poured out his Spirit in dramatic ways, one of the most powerful and exciting things is that where the Spirit is working, there is unity where otherwise there would be disunity. One of the famous stories that comes to mind is uh, what has become known as the Azusa Street Revival. Uh, One of the key figures in this was a guy called William Joseph Seymour, who was a preacher who was born in 1870 to former slaves in Louisiana, a state that was plagued by some of the worst racial violence in U.S. history. In 1895, he became a Christian and he began to study theology. But a few years later, he contracted smallpox, uh, which left him blind in one eye. Undeterred, he continued to train for the ministry, and in January 1906, he was asked if he would go and pastor a church in Los Angeles. So he moved to lead this church. Two weeks after being there, he was kicked out of the church he had moved to lead. Why? Because people didn't like his message about the availability of the Holy Spirit for all people. And so with nowhere to go, he moved in with a small group of believers, very poor believers, and they prayed together. Night after night, they would pray and pray and pray and ask for God to pour out his spirit. And then in April 1906, God did it in a dramatic way. He poured out his spirit upon that group such that many people around thought, I've got to experience something of this. And they flocked to where they were praying. In fact, the reports say that so many people came that the building was in danger of collapse. The porch literally couldn't stand the weight of the people wanting to be there. 
And so they looked around and they found this church in Azusa Street, this old derelict church, and they moved in there and they decided to hold daily meetings where they would pray and worship together. 500 people came every single day to pray and worship and experience the life-transforming power of the Spirit. And this was the beginning of what has now been known as the Pentecostal movement. And there were incredible things that happened in those meetings for three years. There were healings and miracles, amazing things. But you know, perhaps the most radical thing that happened was the level of unity that people experienced there, which was unlike anything the church had ever seen to that point. In contrast to many of the churches, the meetings at Azusa Street were incredibly diverse. Men and women, black and white, from different social classes, worshipped together, led together, opened their homes to one another. This was so radical that many other church leaders had no idea what to do with it. In fact, even Charles Parham, who was a white preacher who had been a great mentor to William Seymour up until this point, he looked at it and he denounced what was going on because he couldn't believe that such a level of freedom and equality was a work of the Spirit. But of course it is. It's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. The Spirit is making a community in which all are welcome and all are equal. This was a group of people who experienced the empowering of the Spirit and looked at one another and thought, if I have the Spirit of God and you have the Spirit of God and neither of us deserves the Spirit of God, yet we all have the same Spirit, how could I ever look down upon you? And what I love about the Azusa Street story is just the number of social walls that get torn down when the Spirit comes. You get this visually impaired preacher, a poor praying community, praying and starting a revival that drew together many people into one family, irrespective of race, gender, or class, or any other dividing factor. And what strikes me is that when you read the stories of revivals, you read the story of the outpouring of the Spirit right through history, this happens time and time again. The Spirit brings unity. The historian Alex Ryrie, writing about this, he says, one of the most powerful things behind the Pentecostal revival was this potent idea that the Spirit would empower every believer regardless of nationality, age, sex, or education. And preaching this message sparked revivals in Australia in 1901, Estonia 1902, Sweden 1905, and he carries on. An empowered church is a united church because where the Spirit moves, there should be unity. So as we think about wanting to be an empowered church, does our mind go to the miracles, the signs and wonders first? Or do we long for unity that may somehow be an answer to the divided world in which we live? The gospel gets to Antioch, Acts chapter 11. Let me tell you a bit about this city. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a a place with a population of about half a million people. And the density, the population density of this city was unlike any other city in the ancient world. There were 75,000 people per square mile in that city. To put that in perspective, I, I, I hear that, I don't know if that's a lot or a little, but to put it in perspective, the population density of Greater London right now is 11,760 people per square mile. So Antioch is a busy, densely populated, tightly packed city. And it was one of the most cosmopolitan cities of the ancient world. There were so many people there from different ethnic and religious backgrounds. There was a huge divide between rich and poor, people who had various levels of education. There were Greek class systems at work. There were Roman class systems at work. It was a heavily divided place. What's more, it was filled with traders coming from right across the world, speaking many different languages. It was said that you would hear more languages in the city of Antioch than anywhere else on earth. 
And the combination of population density and diversity made it a, a volatile place. The historian Rodney Stark describes Antioch as a city filled with hatred and fear, rooted in intense ethnic antagonism and exacerbated by a constant stream of strangers, a city so lacking in stable networks of attachment that petty incidents could pr prompt mob violence. Not a great place to live. At some point in Antioch's history, people had looked at this crowd and thought, what are we going to do to bring peace? And the decision they had made was to wall the city off into different sections. Literally, they built walls to keep the different groups of people apart from one another. And this is the context into which the apostles come with the gospel in chapter 11. They get there and they preach, not only for the first time to Jews, but to everyone who would listen. And it says, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. From the beginning, the church of Antioch was hugely diverse. And in this segregated city where groups were literally walled off from one another, the church became the place where those walls got torn down. Verse 26 says this, the disciples were called Christians first to Antioch which sort of strikes me as a nice little bit of trivia there. Oh, that's where the name came from. But actually, it's more important than that. Because what happened at Antioch was so radical that they needed to come up with a new term for it. As these men and women from different races, classes, and religious backgrounds started literally crossing dividing lines to worship together and to be together in community, they found that they could no longer be defined by previous labels. And so people had to call them something different. They became a new identifiable group that needed a new name. And what united them was something eternally deeper than culture, race, or shared religious heritage. Their new identity was in Christ. In him, the dividing walls are torn down. Fast forward six years and two chapters. And in Acts chapter 13, we see that the church at Antioch is way more established. And we get this depiction of the leadership team, and it gives this list of names. And if you're anything like me, I see a list of names, and I think, yeah, I can skip that, get on to the next miracle story or something like that. But if you stop and look at the list of names, it's really telling. You've got a guy called Barnabas, a Greek Jew from Cyprus of the tribe of Levi. You've got a guy called Simeon, whose Latin name means black, which suggests he was one of the many black Africans who lived in the Mediterranean. You've got a guy called Lucius, who was from Cyrene, probably a Roman Gentile. You've got Menaean, who was a Palestinian aristocrat, who'd been brought up with Herod, King Herod, probably as a foster brother. And then you've got Saul, a Jewish Pharisee from Asia Minor. You've got this community of people from different classes, countries, and religious backgrounds who had previously have been literally separated by stone walls, but are now living together, worshipping together, leading together. The church at Antioch has become a living embodiment of the fact that the Spirit has torn down walls and united them in Christ. And Paul is here, and he sees this, and he experiences it. And it becomes so important for him that when he writes to the Ephesians about the power of the gospel, this becomes the metaphor of what Christ has done. He writes to the Ephesians, Christ is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. The gospel tears down walls that divide and the spirit makes us one. And this theme runs right through the book of Acts, right through the New Testament. The spirit knits us together into family. And notice this is something that God does, not something primarily that we 
do. So when Paul continues writing to the Ephesians, he says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of this calling you have received. Be humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice he doesn't tell us to make the unity of the Spirit. God makes the unity. The Spirit brings unity. But we are tasked with keeping the unity that God brings through the gospel. In Harper Lee's novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, there's this great moment where Jem Finch, one of the characters, says this now famous phrase. His Atticus says, you can choose your friends, but you sure can't choose your family. And they're still kin to you no matter whether you acknowledge them or not. And it makes you look right silly when you don't. <laughs> I like that quote, and I think it's true. Only in the gospel, it doesn't actually go far enough. Because when we refuse to recognize the unity that the Spirit makes, we don't simply look silly. We actually, as Paul said, live a life that is unworthy of the gospel. We actually live a life, as Peter realized, that stands in the way of God. He is in the process of making unity where there is diversity and um, disunity, rather. And he calls us to get on board in keeping the unity that he has made. God has made us one. We're one family. And you are stuck with me. <laughs> and I'm stuck with some of you. I'm stuck with all of you. <laughs> but some of you I'm happy about. <laughs> Our task is not to make unity. God is doing that supernaturally in a way that no one else can. But we are tasked with keeping the unity that God has brought about. And many of us, I suspect, would agree with that. But the challenge is, are there any areas where we, perhaps unconsciously, are in danger of fostering disunity? If we, with this knowledge and understanding of the power of the gospel, ever look at one another, our fellow brothers and sisters who share the same spirit of God that we do, and on the basis of gender or race or class or age or any other thing, think that somehow I am better than that other person that has the spirit of God, then we are in danger of, at best, sitting on opposite sides of a wall that's been torn down. At worst, we're in danger of rebuilding the wall. The Holy Spirit brings unity, knitting us together into one family, and then tasks and empowers us to keep that unity. Let me tell you a story about a lady called Jane Elliott. Some of you may recognize this lady. She's an inspirational woman. In 1968, she was a primary school teacher in Iowa. And shortly following, I think in fact actually the day after Martin Luther King's assassination, she decided that she was going to use her platform as a teacher to teach her class of eight-year-old white kids about privilege and prejudice. And so as the children came into class, they had no idea this was coming. She divided them into two groups based solely on the color of their eyes. And she told them that brown-eyed children were smarter, nicer, and cleaner than blue-eyed children, and they deserved to be treated way better as a result. I can see from your faces some of you agree with that. <laughs> and some of you look like you're trying to like, desperately remember what color your eyes are. <laughs> but um, you're definitely a blue eye. Um, but <laughs> so she tells this group, and instantly the dynamic of the room changes. 
people start thinking about themselves and about each other in completely different ways to how they had before. Within an hour or two, the social dynamics of the group had shifted. The brown-eyed kids became way more interested in learning, but they also became more arrogant, and they actually started bullying the blue-eyed kids. We've always known that you blue-eyed kids are worse than us. And they started bullying one another. This tore the groups apart. Friendship groups were torn apart within hours. By the end of the day, many of the blue-eyed kids who were actually very intelligent, who had been getting good grades up to that point, they were just really struggling to learn. They were being withdrawn. The group was torn apart. A few days later, they come back into class and Jane says, oh, actually, I, I think I got it wrong. Actually, it's the blue-eyed kids. You're better than the brown-eyed kids. You're the more clever ones. You're the more intelligent ones. Instantly, it shifted again. The same power dynamic changed. By the end of the day, the blue-eyed kids were feeling proud and arrogant and bullying the brown-eyed kids. A report says that the pressure this put upon the children was so great that at the end of the experiment, when Jane came clear and said, actually, this is not true, you are all completely equal. It says that the children were so relieved that they hugged one another and wept and said, we will never judge one another on the basis of any outward appearance. And this is one of the most powerful psychological experiments to this day. And before you write it off as something that was just for kids or just related to race relations, actually, it's far broader than that. And Jane Elliott has gone on to conduct this experiment in, across decades in many different settings, in organizations right across the world with adults, with children, with loads of people, exploring the ways in which we judge one another on simple, trivial things. In fact, uh, not right now, but when you get home, Google um, or go into YouTube and check out Jane Elliott, Oprah Winfrey, and see what happens when she did this in front of a live audience in 1992. It is fascinating, uh, partly because of the dress sense of the people involved. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it makes for amazing TV, but it's also terrifying. The way in which grown adults just turn on one another for no reason whatsoever. Now, I read that, and I heard that, and it struck me, man, I do that. There are many ways in which I make judgments on people. I don't think of myself as being particularly prejudiced, but things may just make me treat someone else differently without me even knowing it. I think many of us, if not all of us, have moments like that where we make judgments on people based on simple, irrelevant things that foster disunity as a result, but if we are to be those who keep the unity that the Spirit has made, perhaps we need to ask God, would you show me what's going on in my heart? Would you show me if there are areas that right up to now I've never been aware of, but ways in which I make judgments on others on the basis of class or gender or race or physical appearance or anything? God, would you show me what's in my heart? And would you help me to be someone filled with your spirit, who works to keep the unity that you have brought about. This is a key part of what it means to be an empowered church. It's not all about prayer and faith and miracles and signs and wonders. It's about unity. It's about doing what the spirit does. It's about keeping the unity that he has made amongst us. Unity in diversity is something that the Spirit does within us. And when we live as genuine family, we become a testament to the world of the uniting power of God. You know, Jesus says to his disciples, by this shall all people know that you are my disciples. Not by the miracles you do, not by the sermons you preach, 
but by the way in which you love one another. And remember who he's talking to at this point. A zealot, a fisherman, the sons of thunder, a tax collector. And he says the way in which you love one another will be like a megaphone to the world of the power of the gospel. That's true for us. As we seek to be an empowered church, a church that shares the good news of Jesus, one of the ways we do it is by keeping the unity that he has made. So where do we go from here? Well, there are big implications for us. And to be honest, as a church, I think we've got a long way to go on this. I know that. I'm sure many of you will know that as well. Our leadership team does not yet look as diverse as that at Antioch. It doesn't even look as diverse as our city. We've got a long way to go in terms of gender diversity, ethnic diversity, age, class, a whole load of things. We know that. And I would ask you, would you pray for us? Pray that something would change. Pray that we would achieve these goals. We are making steps, but we've got a long way to go. And don't simply pray from a distance. Help us as well. It's not the case that you need to pray that we get the answers. Be the answer. Share your stories. Share your perspectives. Help us. And begin where you are. Whoever you are, wherever you live in this city, I think each of us can begin to build communities around us that show, that demonstrate the wall-tearing down love of God and power of the Spirit. And here are just three simple suggestions. I mean, it's not rocket science at all, but maybe this is the beginning of something. If we are to build strong families, here are three things that each of us can do. The first thing, strong families share meals. (laughs) Very simple. All the research shows that families that eat together tend to be healthier, tend to have a greater degree of emotional strength. If that's true for biological families, I think it's true for us as well. Strong families eat together. When we socialize together, when we eat together, when we do life together, We develop a deeper level of relationship than we possibly can by just saying hi on a Sunday in a 90-minute meeting. So here's a challenge for you. Think about your friendship group. Think about the people you socialize with, the people you open your home to. How similar or different are all those people? Do you tend to hang out with people of the same age as you, the same class as you, who are as educated as you? If so, might there be something of the diversity of this family into which God has put us that you might be missing out on? Are there ways we can widen our social group? Not as an act of tokenism, no one wants that. But as a way of exploring and enjoying the diversity of this family that God has put us into. Strong families share meals. Secondly, strong families share stories. You know, eating together, hanging out is only helpful if it actually genuinely allows us to get to know each other at a deeper than surface level. We can't imagine that just by spending time together, we will know each other deeply. Even if you're in a connect group and you meet with people week in, week out, you will only get to know people to the extent that you allow them into your lives. Strong families share stories. And one of the greatest things about eating together as a family is the things you discuss over the table, sometimes with smiles and laughter and sometimes with a bit of stress as well. We need to be those who share our stories. We are all different. But many of us, I'm sure, having talked to many of you and knowing how I felt about this, many of us think that the way to deal with our difference is just to ignore it and just sort of imagine there is no difference. I know, to be honest, that's how I've operated for many years. I believe the Bible teaches that we are all equal. And so I have often thought, well, therefore there is no difference. I should ignore it. That's not a helpful way to go. It really isn't. Because it's easy to think that way when you're in the majority. But the 
the very fact that I can choose to act as if there is no difference between us shows that I have privilege that not everyone else enjoys. If we deny our differences, we actually suggest that difference is something to be overcome rather than something to be celebrated. Our differences are good things. God has made us different. He has made us male and female, black and white, old and young. Well, he made us all young and some of us have become old, but uh, that didn't quite work. But you know what I mean. Difference is great. And when we learn to talk about it and celebrate it, we enjoy the family into which God has put us. So why not, in the context of friendship and trust, ask questions of one another to be clear in case you don't get it. Don't invite people around and present them a list of questions like a questionnaire. But I think if we are to grow in knowing one another deeper, then maybe we can start to create a culture in which we share our own stories. And if you need some suggestions, here are a few that I have found in books and found helpful. And I've asked people here, I've said, what would you like people to ask you? And these are some of the questions. Why not ask, would you tell me a bit about your background and your family? Can you share examples of how difference or diversity has touched your life positively and negatively? What has been your experience of coming to faith? What has been your experience of being part of this church? And what would it look like for Christchurch London to be a place where everyone felt accepted and welcome? As we can start to have conversations like this, I think we will benefit from one another's wisdom. And ask yourself as well, what wisdom might I be lacking that I could gain from listening to someone, others, uh, someone else's story and their perspective? Strong families share meals. Strong families share stories. And thirdly and finally, strong families share struggles. Because actually sharing about our diversity can be a great thing. It can be an encouraging thing. But the flip side is also true that many people experience the pain of diversity. It is not all good. We are not all treated the same by everyone we meet. And my experience as a white, heterosexual, mid-30s, middle-class, able-bodied male will be vastly different to the experience of many people in this church. And I can't presume to know what it feels like for you to live in this city, in this world, and be part of this church. And so the only way we can get to know is to share our struggles. Although I believe that the Bible teaches we are completely equal in value, in our day-to-day -day life, not all of us experience that. And when we deny that there is any difference, we actually deny one another the opportunity to share our pain and to experience healing from it. So if we are to be a strong family, then again, in the context of love and trust and friendship and relationship, we should be able to have difficult conversations where we share our struggles with one another. I think many of us, avoid conversations about difference because we feel awkward about them. To be honest, I know I do. Coming into this talk, I feel awkward about it. I often avoid conversations about difference because of fear, because I fear saying things that will be unhelpful, because I fear saying things that will be misconstrued, or I fear saying things that show my ignorance. Actually, I look at so many conversations about difference, particularly online, and they so quickly just get into exercises in virtue signaling. And, and it's often done so badly that I think I don't know what I would say that would be helpful. And so I avoid it. But if we allow fear to stop us having these difficult conversations, we miss out on being genuine family. We have got to find a way through to have conversations in which we share our struggles in a way that is helpful and healthy. And the tone of our conversations is so important. When Paul talks about the unity of the Spirit, he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. We need to have humility to recognize we won't always get it right. 
And when we spot things about ourselves that we know are wrong or we don't like, we need to have the humility to do something about it. We need to think the best of one another. We need to be patient when we get it wrong, and we need to gently encourage one another to have healthy conversation. You know, in preparing this talk, I have had so much help that has been brilliant from various people who've taken the time to share their stories, their experience, their struggles, to look over my script and say, don't say that, <laughs> or this is a better way of saying that. And to be clear, anything good in the talk probably comes from them. Anything bad, I'll take the blame for. But I have really benefited from the generous tone that they have shown me. And I'm sure there have been times where they've had to bear with me as I've shown my ignorance time and time again. But the only way we are going to grow to have healthy conversations is if we bear with one another in love. It's only as we understand each other's struggles and care deeply about each other that we're able to do what Paul tells them, uh, the Galatians that the church should do in carrying one another's burdens. Maybe the band could come back up. I don't know how you feel about this theme. Maybe for some of you it feels a very abstract theme. Maybe for some of you it feels a very personal theme. Maybe a painful theme. I think it's so important. And I know that we have barely scratched the surface today. And we will need to come back to this again and again and again, I am sure. But to summarize, the Holy Spirit is on a mission of reconciliation. He is tying people into family together. He is tearing down walls, building a community in which all are welcome and all are equal. And he invites us to be a part of that mission, keeping the unity of the Spirit. And so in a moment, we're going to worship and invite the Holy Spirit to come. And it may well be that there are particular things that God has been prompting you about today. Maybe you know, actually, there are ways that I look at others and judge others that are unhelpful, unhealthy. Confess that to God or ask him to reveal what's going on in your heart. Maybe you need to reach out to someone else to forgiveness or to start a conversation with someone. Maybe you just need to decide to make some practical steps to share meals, stories and struggles with others. Or maybe you want to use this as a moment to pray that God would make us a united church. At the end, there'll be a prayer team who would love to pray with you if you would value that for anything at all. But firstly, why don't we stand? I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the spirit and then we will worship. Heavenly Father, your word says that where your people dwell in unity, you command blessing. So we don't presume to think that we will get your blessing in any other way. We want to dwell in unity. We want to live lives worthy of the gospel. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you showed us your love at the cross, where you laid down your life for us. And in your death and resurrection, you tore down every wall of hostility so we could be reconciled to you and to one another. Thank you that you've put us together into family. Holy Spirit, would you deepen our love for one another and help us to keep the unity that you have made. I pray that we would learn how to be humble and gentle and patient bearing with one another in love and carrying each other's burdens. Where we have caused division, would you forgive us and help us to forgive one another? Would you heal pain and mend wounds by the power of your spirit? I pray that this church would be a safe place for all 
and a powerful living embodiment of the uniting power of the gospel. May the way in which we love one another demonstrate to this divided world the hope that is available through you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.